We are going to dive right in to part four of our conviction series. Uh, as you probably know, we are working our way through our statement of faith. We deviated from that a little bit last week. How many of you guys enjoyed Pastor Rob as he got to speak about the Holy Spirit? Come on, let's give it up for Pastor Rob. So grateful for another church in town that loves us, that is for us, that believes in us. Uh, in fact, I'll just tell you how awesome Pastor Rob is. Um, he has already texted and spoken with me on the phone this morning trying to help us troubleshoot our, our internet crashed today. So we are actually not live streaming right now for the first time in years that we don't have a live stream going on because uh, our, our internet crashed and Pastor Rob was graciously stepped away from his Sunday morning responsibilities at Harvest to try to help get City Church back online. And that's just the kind of guy that he is. Um, he, he just believes in us. He loves us. He is for us and his wife, Shauna. And so we're so grateful for them. I had a lot of fun going over to Church of the Harvest last week. Um, it, was, it was a great, great Sunday to get to swap pulpits. But I'm so excited to be back with my people. Sometimes it's fun to go visit, right? It's fun to go on vacation. It's fun to see some other people, but there ain't no place like home. And it is good to be home today, especially because I get to speak on one of my absolute favorite topics. In fact, I believe if you're a lover of Jesus, this should be one of your favorite topics. Today we're going to talk about what we believe about people. Just to give a, a little bit of foundation that you're obviously very aware of, at least most of us, just as a way of reminder, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And what was his response? His response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. But then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said the most important thing you can do is love God with all you are. I think that's kind of a given when it comes to church, right? This is what church is about. It's about loving God well. It's about worshiping God. It's about connecting to God. We, I think, generally understand that even though we may not be great at doing it. But we get that that's the goal. But I think sometimes we forget that, that God's goal isn't just for him to be loved, it's for his people to be loved. And it's for the ones that he created to be loved. And so today, we get to talk about what we believe about people. So a few weeks ago, we gave you the, the handout of our statement of faith. If you didn't get one of those or if you've already lost it, you can go to citychurchlb.com and find the, the what we believe section and all of that is unpacked for you right there. But today, we're going to work our way through our statement on what we believe about people. And what we're going to do is we're going to pull seven statements out of this statement and we're going to work through each of them starts out like this. It says man, or you could say mankind, woman, obviously as well, was made in the spiritual image of God to be like him in character, the supreme object of God's creation. Although every person has tremendous potential for good, all of us from birth are marred by an attitude of disobedience towards God called sin. Because of sin, all people are born under a curse and in a state of spiritual separation from God, the ultimate result of sin is death. We've got a number of biblical references there that you can look up. We'll hit some of those in the message today uh, and also have some other verses to, to back up some of these statements. So seven 
many statements inside this one statement that we're going to work through. What do we believe about people? Um, We're going to start with number one, and some of these probably we could do in any order, right? Like it's not necessarily like all of these build on the ones before, but I'm so grateful the first one is first. Uh, The series they're doing over at Church of the Harvest right now is called First Things First. Uh, And so I got to speak on priorities last week, and I got to speak on the priority of the church, how important it is for us to prioritize the church. It was a lot of fun. It was an exciting topic. But uh, in our statement here, I'm so grateful this first one comes first because I think it's the foundational statement from which we need to view all of the rest. And the first one is this, man was made in the spiritual image of God. So often as we're communicating salvation, as we're communicating the gospel plan, if we're not careful, we start with everybody's a sinner, which is extremely true, right? We are all sinners. We are all broken. We are all fallen. That is extremely biblical. However, if that's where we start, I think it misses something so key. See, the story does not start with Adam and Eve sinning. The story starts with Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Man, he breathes life into them. He has intimate relationship to them. And if we circumvent that, if we forget about that point, it gives us a flawed view of man. It causes us to be I think sometimes they're very frustrated with people. I don't know. I'm sure I'm the only one in this room that ever gets frustrated with people. Um, causes us to, to be judgmental towards people, right? And, and I get that. We live in a generation that's inventing new ways to sin, that is coming up with, with things that seem ridiculous to me. And I'm not that old, right? I'm 41. I'm right kind of smack in the middle. But I look at stuff, and I'm like, When I was in school, we would have said you were crazy. Like, you would have got bullied so bad, and I wasn't even a bully, but I'd have probably supported them. Uh, And and things seem so crazy right now. But we can't forget, we are created in the image of God. That's not just a statement for the church. That's a statement for mankind. Mankind, womankind, is created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, at the end of creation, on day six, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see even at the very beginning, gender was God's idea. Gender is not a social construct. Gender is a, a biblical construct. It's a God construct. No, that's not a popular thing to say, but that's just the reality of what the Bible teaches us. Gender was his idea from day one. Male and female. So that means that every man fully created in the image of God, every woman fully created in the image of God, you've never set eyes on anybody who was not created in the image of God. You never insulted anybody who was not created in the image of God. You've never hated somebody who was not created in the image of God. Everyone you've ever laid eyes on, everyone you've ever interacted with, everyone who ever wrote a check in the Kroger line in front of you was created in the image of God, right? doesn't mean that everything they do is a reflection of God, because certainly everything I do is not a reflection of God. But we've got to understand every person, the ones that are easy to love, the ones that are hard to love, the ones who live the way God wants them to, the ones who live in complete rebellion and disobedience to God, all of us 
were created in his image. We were made to reflect God. That's what it means to be made in his image. That, that what really, and I, here's a theory that I've heard, and I like it. And again, this is a theory. I can't prove this to you biblically. So if you want to reject this, reject it. You don't have to believe this. Here's, I don't even remember the first person I heard that said this, but I love it. They said that we know that Lucifer fell before creation of mankind, right? Lucifer, one of the, the archangels, the archangel of worship. He rebelled against God. A third of the demons kicked out of heaven along with him. God sent them away from heaven. Well, here's the theory. God sent them to earth. That earth was actually the, the punishment colony for Satan and his demonic forces. And then God created man in his image. And so the one thing that Satan hated the most, he created us to remind him every day that he's in control. You can accept that. You can reject that. It's a theory. I can't prove it to you biblically, but I love that idea. That part of my responsibility, part of the reason I was created is, is to remind Satan he's not on the throne. Is to, to remind that when Satan looks at me, he's supposed to think about God. Because I'm created in God's image. I like that thought. The first statement in our statement of faith is that we are made in the spiritual image of God. The second statement here is that man was made to be like God in character. So we're made to be like God spiritually, right? We, we reflect God. We look like God. But then we're also created to be like him. In the way we live. This happens again and again in scripture. We're told to be imitators of God, right? Like Jesus, as he's calling his disciples, he says, follow me. In the way that a rabbi would call disciples 2,000 years ago, a teacher, is that he, he would walk by and if a disciple said, hey, I want to follow you, I want to be like you, I want to sit at your feet and study under you, is they would literally play follow the leader with that rabbi. As that rabbi walked, they would just walk behind the rabbi and that was their application. That was the resume they were submitting for discipleship, said, hey, I want to study under you. So when John and Peter and others became disciples, they were literally following after Jesus. That is ultimately the plan for us. Now, we're going to talk about some of these things a little more. Next week, we're going to talk about what do we believe about eternity. The week after that, what do we believe about salvation? Later on, we'll talk about what do we believe about the church. So I don't want to get too in-depth on this right now, but, but make sure that we understand before we get to the fallenness of man, before we get to the sinfulness of man, God created us to be like him, both in spiritual nature and our eternal character that we're going to live forever, but also in our actual behavior. Man, that we would reflect him, that we would be like him. Thirdly, in creation, another positive, we see that man is the supreme object of God's creation. The way that I used to teach it to our students uh, is that in creation, God made everything and then he created man and we were the cherry on top of God's Sunday, right? We, we were the, the finishing piece. We were the part that, that he was most excited to put there. And here's why I believe this, because six times in the creation story, it says that God looked down at what he had made and said and saw that it was good. Time and time again, God declares his creation good. You can fact check me if you like in Genesis 1, verses 4, 9, 12, 18, 21, and 25. Now, believe it or not, this actually is not all six days of creation. 
For some reason, God does not say it was good on day two. He does on day one. But then he says it's good twice on day three. So I don't know what it was about day three, but God really liked day three. Um, and he actually says it's good twice on day six. The first time is in verse 25. See, it, what happened in the story on day six is God creates it says animals because at that point in time, they classified animals differently. So birds weren't animals. Fish weren't animals. They were fish. They were birds, right? So when it says animals, it's really talking about what we would probably call mammals. Uh, and, and so he creates these mammals and he fills the earth with them and tells them to reproduce after their own kind. And he says it's good. But then he's not done on day six. Verse 31 actually tells us this. After he had created man, after he had created Adam, says God saw all that he had made and it was, he saw all that he had made and it was very good. Everything else God made, planets, stars, mountains, canyons, God made some mind-blowing stuff. He thought up light and spoke light into existence. But the only time God ever looked down on his creation with such satisfaction to say it is very good is when he made people. We are the supreme object of God's affection. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been some moments where I've questioned God's judgment on that. Because it seems like out of all creation, we're the ones who get things wrong the most. We're the ones who are the most broken, the most hateful, the most destructive. Like, we're the ones who probably are deserving of that place the least. But his ways are higher than my ways. And his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And when God looks at people, he says, it's very good. It's the best. It's the greatest thing I've ever created. This is now full. It is complete. My creation is finished. And so when it comes to the way that we treat people, the way that we pursue people, the way that we love people, we have to see people the way that God sees people, made in his image, designed to, to be like him, the supreme object of his affection. When we begin to, to filter our thoughts and the way that we treat people through the way that God sees people and the way that God treats people, it's going to cause us to do things differently. It's going to cause us to look at a three-hour serve day on a Saturday morning as a very, very minor inconvenience. In fact, not even an inconvenience, an opportunity. Wow, we get to go out there and love the people that God loves. We get to love this community that God is for. We get to show this city what a blessing he is. And I'm not just trying to guilt trip you into going to serve day, although that might be part of my motivation. Go to serve day. But man, that's a small, small piece of what God's called us to in loving people and, and sacrificing for people because these are the ones that he loves so, so much. Amen? Amen. Amen. One more positive before we get to the negatives, and there's some negatives about people. Every person has tremendous potential for good. Every single person that God ever created has incredible potential for good, to do amazing things to bring glory to God, amazing things to, to be a blessing to others. Every person God created has phenomenal potential for good. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. 
because God is for them, not against them, Romans 8.10 tells us, or 31, excuse me. It says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? God is for us. We are City Church for Olive Branch, right? Not just, we used to be City Church of Olive Branch, and that was good. It tells people where we're from. But we felt like, man, we want to make a bolder statement that we're for our city. Why are we for our city? Because we serve a God that's for our city. We serve a God that loves our city, and he has chosen to put us here. And so if he's put us here, we need to be for our city. Now, you might not be from Olive Branch. You might be from South Haven or Hernando or Bahalia or Memphis or Horn Lake or insert whatever other community here. I believe God has called you to be for your community. Uh, for, for us, that means things like we got to work on talking down about Memphis, talking down about Mississippi. I used to be guilty of talking down about Mississippi. I know you've probably heard that come out of my mouth on occasion. Never thought I was going to be sent to Mississippi. But you know what? God loves Mississippi. God loves Olive Branch. God even loves Memphis. And I know for some of you that might be hard to hear. But it's true. He loves Memphis. Uh, and, and so we're not going to speak ill of the ones that God loves. Right? Uh, so everyone that God ever created has amazing potential for good. Why? Because they've got the potential to be filled with his Holy Spirit, like Pastor Rob talked about last week. The potential to be called according to God's purpose. The potential to be used by God for incredible things. That doesn't mean they will live up to that potential. I know I am guilty oftentimes of not living up to the potential God's placed in me. So certainly we all have the ability to not do this, but every single person you ever encounter has the potential to do amazing things for God. Amen? All right, so let's get to the bad news. We covered the good news, four good things about people. Now there's three pieces that are less good. All of us, number five, from birth are marred by an attitude and disobedience towards God called sin. All of us. Now, when you first hold an infant, newborn baby, that thing seems so innocent and so wonderful and so amazing. I don't believe that the sin nature has kicked in yet. When you first hold that newborn baby, right, they're innocent. Uh, but as you raise children, you discover the sin nature kicks in soon. Uh, that rebellious nature kicks in soon. That ability to know what is right and do the opposite kicks in early. Now, I believe that God is good and God is gracious, and I do believe that there's an, an age of accountability where, man, up until that point, if someone were to die before they have the ability to really recognize who Jesus is and give their life to him, that there's a grace that covers that. I don't know exactly what that age is. I know people who are, like, firm. It's five years old. It's seven years old. It's 13 years old. Like, I, I think it's hard for us to put a specific age on. I think God treats people differently. Uh, based on their capability. I think some people who, who have different disabilities, that age might be a whole lot higher for them. Or they may not ever get to a point where, where God is going to hold them accountable because they don't have the, the mental capacity to understand. I believe for most of us, it's obviously a, a point where it comes. But regardless of that, the point is here, we're all born destined to sin. We're all born destined to rebel against God, to reject his call on our lives. We're born with a predisposition towards sin, every single one of us. Again, everybody you've ever looked at, made in the image of God, everyone you've ever looked at, born a sinner. It affects all of us. 
Many, many places we could turn to in Scripture to show you this. I'm just going to use one passage for time's sake from Ephesians chapter 2. It says this about Christians, about believers. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So all of us who have received salvation, all of us who are following Jesus, we at one point were dead in our sins. Why? Because we're all born to sin. Verse 3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, them being the heathen, them being those who are rebellious towards God, enemies of God, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So you were born a sinner. I was born a sinner. Uh, there, there is sinfulness that separates us from God, right, that causes us to, to not be close to God, to not have relationship with God. I remember years and years and years ago, uh, I worked at a camp, and one thing what we used to teach at the, the, this camp, I was like 15 years old, is we taught them, this was the definition of sin. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that is displeasing to God. I think it's a very simple, very clear definition. Anything we think, say, or do that is dishonoring, displeasing to God. We all know we have sin. What does that mean? Number six, because of sin, all people are under a curse. And in a state of spiritual separation from God. Because all of us are sinners. Now again, the, if, we, if we take this statement by itself, we can misinterpret it. This is part of the previous sentence, which says that we're sinners from birth. Right? That we're born sinners. So this is also, you can insert if you need to, if it makes you feel better. Because of sin, all people are born under a curse. Doesn't mean we're still under a curse. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Uh, but before salvation... We are under a curse and in a state of spiritual separation from God. What's sin do? It separates me from God. God's, the Father can be in the presence of no sin. And because he can't be in the presence of sin, it means he can't be in the presence of us. At least until a price has been paid for our sin, a sacrifice has been made to remove our sin. So we're separated from God. This is why when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They went from relationship with God. They went from hanging out and kicking it with the Father, walking around in the garden with him on a casual, relational basis. What an amazing thing. Because of sin, that was no longer available to them. God kicked them from the garden, banished them from the garden, and they lost relationship with God. Not only did that happen to Adam and Eve, but then they passed that on to us. We inherited it in our DNA from them, from our parents, our grandparents, etc. We've all received it. We've also passed it on to our kids. That sin nature gets passed down. Uh, and so all people are under a curse apart from God, apart from a sacrifice for our sin in a state of spiritual separation from God. Isaiah 59 puts it this way. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What does sin do? It separates us from God. It puts a wall, a barrier up for us 
from God. Now, last week, Pastor Rob talked to you about the difference between relationship and fellowship. And I think this is really important for us to understand. Once we come to God, we become his children. There's a relationship that's established. I'm a child of God. So what happens when I sin now is sin doesn't separate me from relationship with God. Sin now separates me from fellowship with God. Right? The, the way that I've illustrated in the past that makes the most sense for me is, is when I sin, it, it's like a, a kid who runs away from home. They're still their father's child. They're still their mother's child. But you know what they're not anymore? They're not able to just go open the fridge and grab whatever they want. They're not able to sit on the couch and grab the remote control and flip through the TV, right? They still have relationship, but the benefits of relationship have been severed. So when I sin as a believer, I'm not condemned to hell. I'm, I'm not getting sent away from God's presence. He still loves me. His spirit still lives me. He's still for me. But what I've done is I've broken fellowship with God. I need to go repent and make it right with God so that fellowship is restored. And again, all the benefits of the relationship are there. Now, now understand me. I still have some benefits of relationship with God even when I'm in sin because God's good and he's gracious. But I have the maximum benefits of relationship with God when I'm in fellowship with him, right? And so that's why it's so important to as quickly as we can, when we feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, God, I'm sorry. God, restore me. Man, let's put that fellowship back together. I want to spend time with you again. I want to be with you again. So the last thing from our statement of faith, seventh thing we're going to break down is that the ultimate result of sin is death. The ultimate result of sin is death. Sin condemns us to die. What did, you, what did God tell Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, don't eat from this tree, because if you do, you will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve thought of that as a physical death. So when they ate the fruit and they didn't physically die, God lied to us. See, there's a fate far worse than physical death, and it's spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. It's being cut off from his presence. And so sin, the ultimate result of sin, is death. We're actually born dead. We're born separated, severed from God spiritually. You've heard it probably many times, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if we go to Romans 3.23, we often quote Romans 3.23. And what's funny about Romans 3.23 is it's not even a complete sentence. It doesn't even start. The sentence doesn't even start in verse 23, and it doesn't end in verse 23. It actually starts, I believe, in verse 22 and ends in verse 24. Um, so we're going to read 23 and 24 today just so we get the complete picture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma. Praise God for the comma. And all, this is all in Christ, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. See, so often we stop the story with what sin does to us, but God doesn't just want us to know what sin does to us. God wants us to know he wants to redeem us. He wants to, to extend grace to us. He wants to justify us through Jesus Christ. So for most of us, these seven things are probably things you already knew at least on some level. may not have heard those exact verses or heard them worded the exact way, but when it comes to the, what do we believe about people, you probably had some understanding of these points. Again, this series isn't so much to teach us a bunch of new stuff as it is to firm up our foundation in what we already know. 
right? So we can be confident in it. We can be bold in it. We can pass it on to others. We can walk in it. But what do we do with this? Well, I believe that we need to make sure that everybody knows some things. I don't think everybody has to know all seven of these things. They don't have to quote our statement of faith. But I think there's three things that every person needs to know, especially every lost person, everyone, man, your, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, your coworkers, three things that every person needs to know. The first one is this. They need to know they're loved. And I don't just mean loved by you, although I think that's really important, but they're loved by God, right? People need to know they are loved. So often we feel unworthy of love. As a believer, as somebody who's known Jesus, as long as I can remember, the first time I ever prayed to receive salvation, I was two years old, right? Like, like I don't remember a time before Christ in my life. I don't even really remember receiving Christ. I've known Jesus as long as I can possibly know him. There are many times where I don't feel lovable. Many times where I don't feel like I deserve God's love, and I don't, but he gives it to me anyway, right? So people need to know they are loved. They need to know they're loved by God, but they need to know they're loved by God's people. I think so often we, we draw these lines where we unfortunately turn people into our enemies. We, we group people into these groups of uh, of their political affiliation, of their lifestyle, of their sin, of whatever it might be. And it's those people, and here we are over here, and the reality is those people are the people Jesus died for. Those people are the people that God loves, and so we don't treat them as the enemy. Our, wep- our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. There is a battle, and we need to fight it, but it's not against people. No matter how broken, how fallen, how messed up, how sinful they happen to be, people aren't the enemy. Amen? People are loved. They're loved by God, and they should be loved by us. Secondly, they need to know not only are they loved, they need to know there's hope. I think we live in a hopeless generation. You look at mental health statistics, that is so discouraging. Man, anxiety through the roof, depression through the roof, man, all these mental issues through the roof. And man, when we just look at daily life, honestly, we've got it better than any generation ever did. Man, our our lives are so convenient and so comfortable and yet so much unhappiness. Why? Because there's never going to be happiness apart from God. There's never going to be fulfillment apart from Jesus. That's why Jesus, in John chapter 4, as as he meets this lady, this woman at the well, who's been divorced five times. She's had five failed marriages. She's living with another dude, and she's kind of at that point where she's like, it's not even worth marrying him because marriage doesn't even work. Right? She is broken. She's probably outcast from society. This was not a culture that celebrated divorce and remarriage. So she's actually at the well at the very hottest time of day when nobody came to the well, probably because she was ashamed to be seen by anybody. She encounters Jesus, and what does he say? He says, if you would have known, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water that never runs dry. Why? Because apart from Jesus, we're always going to thirst. Apart from Jesus, there's always going to be something inside of us that is frustrated, that is broken, that is off. Now, I'm not saying everybody who has depression or everybody who has anxiety doesn't know Jesus. Please don't don't misinterpret what I'm saying there. 
Man, I, I believe that there are, there are very legitimate reasons to deal with those things, to get counseling, to get medication. I'm not trying to put people down because they're dealing with, with stuff. I'm just saying our generation is broken. Our generation is hopeless in so many ways, and people need to know there's hope. There is hope of salvation. There is hope of joy. There is hope of peace. There is hope for something better, and that hope has a name, and the name is Jesus. People need to know their love. They need to know there's hope. Lastly, people need to know they need to repent. Now, those other two feel good, don't they? Those other two are incredible. I'm loved. Yes. There's hope. Yes. I need to repent. No. Right? Like that, that's not so fun. That's not so exciting. That's not so easy to tell people. But repentance is beautiful. There is freedom in repentance. There is deliverance in repentance. Repentance is the thing that brings so much relief. It opens the door for us to receive the love and the hope that are only found in Jesus. What does it mean to repent? Repent literally means to turn from your sin. Repent means to do a 180. I'm going this way. I recognize this way fails, this way is hopeless, this way isn't working, so I turn completely around and go this way. I repent. I'm sorry. It means to turn from my sin. It doesn't just mean to ask forgiveness. Asking forgiveness is good, but repentance is better. Repentance is actually a change of direction. I'm moving in a new way. Now, that's the human side of repentance. You know what the divine side of repentance is? This is what God does. Well, repent, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but let me remind you because you'll use this when you tell people they need to repent because that sounds really judgmental and really hateful, but it's beautiful. What happens when you repent? Well, repent comes from two root words in English. Re is, is to again, do something again, to return, to repeat, right? So, so it's again, and pent is, is the same root that we get the word penthouse. What is a, a penthouse? It's not just a dirty magazine. It's the highest room in a hotel, the highest room in an apartment complex, and the skyscraper. If you get the penthouse, you got the nicest place. You got the most expensive place. You got the best place. So what happens when you repent? You get restored to the highest place. We can illustrate this in the story of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son recognized his sin, recognized the stupidity of his ways, came to his senses, one of my favorite phrases in scripture. He turns around and he goes back to his father's house. But when he gets back to his father's house, he doesn't think he's getting restored to sonship. He thinks he's gonna have to come in at the bottom. Just let me be a servant in your house. It's better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than to be free out there. And that's a very true statement. And I can tell you many times where I repented and I thought I was coming back in at the bottom level. Where now I gotta do a penance, I gotta, I gotta prove myself to God that I'm serious this time. But that's not how God treats me. It's not what God does to me. He didn't bring the prodigal son back in and say, okay, you know what, go report to so-and-so, foreman out, you're gonna go and, and you're gonna go take care of the goats, you're gonna take care of the cows, whatever it might be. He says, no. Kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger. The ring was the, had, had the signature. It was the symbol of the family. It carried the authority of the father. He said, you're mine. 
I'm restoring you to your rightful place as my son. When you repent, you don't come in at the bottom level. You get restored to the highest place. We just sang a song. Look where I'm standing now. Where are you standing? The Bible says you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You're restored to the highest place, not because of your good, but because of his. But that's the place he's given us. As believers, we should walk in victory. We should walk in hope. We should walk in optimism. I know it seems like the world is going crazy. I know like it seems like stuff is falling apart. But the promise of scripture is that when sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So I think God's got a plan for this generation. They need to know they're loved. They need to know there's hope. And they need to know they're sinners and they need to repent. Because repentance brings freedom. Amen? Amen. What do we believe about people? We believe people are created in the image of God. We believe that people are designed to be like God. We believe that people are the cherry on top of God's creation. We believe that every person is born with incredible potential for good. But we also believe that people are born sinners, that that sin has separated them from God, and that ultimately that sin leads to death if they don't receive a sacrifice for their sins. So what does that mean? It means we got to tell them. It means we got a responsibility, church. We got to live for God in such a way that Christianity is attractive and not repelling. And we got to open our mouths and proclaim the truth that they're loved, that there's hope, and that God offers freedom if they'll repent.